Chapter Ten of the Death of the Lion. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Death of the Lion by Henry James. Chapter Ten. It has not been recovered. I wrote early the next day, and I'm moreover much troubled about our friend. He came back from Bigwood with a chill, and being allowed to have a fire in his room, lay down a while before dinner. I tried to send him to bed, and indeed thought I had put him in the way of it, but after I had gone to dress, Mrs. Wimbush came up to see him, with the inevitable result that when I returned I found him under arms and flushed and feverish, though decorated with the rare flower she had bought him for his buttonhole. He came down to dinner, but Lady Augusta Minch was very shy of him. Today he's in great pain, and the advent of Say Dame, I mean of Guy Walsingham and Dora Forbes, doesn't at all console me. It does Mrs. Wimbush, however, for she has consented to his remaining in bed, so that he may be all right tomorrow for the listening circle. Guy Walsingham's already on the scene, and the doctor for Paraday also arrived early. I haven't yet seen the author of Obsessions, but of course I've had a moment by myself with the doctor. I tried to get him to say that our invalid must go straight home, I mean tomorrow or next day, but he quite refuses to talk about the future. Absolute quiet and warmth, and the regular administration of an important remedy are the points he mainly insists on. He returns this afternoon, and I'm to go back to see the patient at one o'clock when he next takes his medicine. It consoles me a little that he certainly won't be able to read, an exertion he was already more than unfit for. Lady Augusta went off after breakfast, assuring me her first care would be to follow up the lost manuscript. I can see she thinks me a shocking busybody and doesn't understand my alarm, but she'll do what she can, for she's a good-natured woman. So are they all honorable men. That was precisely what made her give the thing to Lord Dorimont and made Lord Dorimont bag it. What use he has for it, God only knows. I've the worst forebodings, but somehow I'm strangely without passion, desperately calm. As I consider the unconscious, the well-meaning ravages of our appreciative circle, I bow my head in submission to some great natural, some universal accident. I'm rendered almost indifferent, in fact quite gay, ha-ha, by the sense of immitigable fate. Lady Augusta promises me to trace the precious object and let me have it through the post by the time Paraday's well enough to play his part with it. The last evidence is that her maid did give it to his lordship's valet. One would suppose it some thrilling number of the family budget. Mrs. Wimbush, who's aware of the accident, is much less agitated by it than she would doubtless be were she not for the hour inevitably engrossed with Guy Walsingham. Later in the day I informed my correspondent, for whom, indeed, I kept a loose diary of the situation, that I had made the acquaintance of this celebrity, and that she was a pretty little girl who wore her hair in what used to be called a crop. She looked so juvenile and so innocent that if, as Mr. Morrow had announced, she was resigned to the larger latitude, her superiority to prejudice must have come to her early. 
I spent most of the day hovering about Neil Paraday's room, but it was communicated to me from below that Guy Walsingham, at Prestige, was a success. Toward evening I became conscious somehow that her superiority was contagious, and by the time the company separated for the night I was sure the larger latitude had been generally accepted. I thought of Dora Forbes, and felt that he had no time to lose. Before dinner I received a telegram from Lady Augusta Minch. Lord Dorimont thinks he must have left Bundle in train. Inquire. How could I inquire, if I was to take the word as a command? I was too worried and now too alarmed about Neil Paraday. The doctor came back, and it was an immense satisfaction to me to be sure he was wise and interested. He was proud of being called to so distinguished a patient, but he admitted to me that night that my friend was gravely ill. It was really a relapse, a recrudescence of his old malady. There could be no question of moving him. We must at any rate see first, on the spot, what turn his condition would take. Meanwhile, on the morrow, he was to have a nurse. On the morrow, the dear man was easier, and my spirits rose to such cheerfulness that I could almost laugh over Lady Augusta's second telegram. Lord Dorimont's servant, been to station, nothing found. Push inquiries. I did laugh, I'm sure, as I remembered this to be the mystic scroll I had scarcely allowed poor Mr. Morrow to point his umbrella at. Fool that I had been, the thirty-seven influential journals wouldn't have destroyed it, they'd only have printed it. Of course I said nothing to Paraday. When the nurse arrived, she turned me out of the room, on which I went downstairs. I should premise that at breakfast the news that our brilliant friend was doing well excited universal complacency, and the princess graciously remarked that he was only to be commiserated for missing the society of Miss Collop. Mrs. Wimbush, whose social gift never shone brighter than in the dry decorum with which she accepted this fizzle in her fireworks, mentioned to me that Guy Walsingham had made a very favourable impression on her imperial highness. Indeed, I think every one did so, and that, like the money market or the national honour, her imperial highness was constitutionally sensitive. There was a certain gladness, a perceptible bustle in the air, however, which I thought slightly anomalous in a house where a great author lay critically ill. Le Roy est mort, vive le Roy. I was reminded that another great author had already stepped into his shoes. When I came down again after the nurse had taken possession, I found a strange gentleman hanging about the hall and pacing to and fro by the closed door of the drawing-room. This personage was florid and bald. He had a big red moustache and wore showy knickerbockers, characteristics all that fitted to my conception of the identity of Dora Forbes. In a moment I saw what had happened. The author of The Other Way Round had just alighted at the portals of prestige, but had suffered a scruple to restrain him from penetrating further. I recognized his scruple when, pausing to listen at his gesture of caution, I heard a shrill voice lifted in a sort of rhythmic uncanny chant. 
the famous reading had begun, only it was the author of Obsessions who now furnished the sacrifice. The new visitor whispered to me that he judged something was going on he oughtn't to interrupt. Miss Collop arrived last night, I smiled, and the princess has a thirst for the inédit. Dora Forbes lifted his bushy brows. Miss Collop? Guy Walsingham, your distinguished confrère, or shall I say your formidable rival? Oh, growled Dora Forbes. Then he added, shall I spoil it if I go in? I should think nothing could spoil it, I ambiguously laughed. Dora Forbes evidently felt the dilemma. He gave an irritated crook to his moustache. "'Shall I go in?' he presently asked. We looked at each other hard a moment. Then I expressed something bitter that was in me, expressed it in an infernal, do. After this I got out into the air, but not so fast as not to hear, when the door of the drawing-room opened, the disconcerted drop of Miss Collop's public manner. She must have been in the midst of the larger latitude. Producing with extreme rapidity, Guy Walsingham has just published a work in which amiable people who are not initiated have been pained to see the genius of a sister novelist held up to unmistakable ridicule. So fresh an exhibition does it seem to them of the dreadful way men have always treated women. Dora Forbes, it's true, at the present hour, is immensely pushed by Mrs. Wimbush, and has sat for his portrait to the young artists she protects, sat for it not only in oils, but in monumental alabaster. What happened at Prestige later in the day is, of course, contemporary history. If the interruption I had whimsically sanctioned was almost a scandal, what is to be said of the general scatter of the company, which, under the doctor's rule, began to take place in the evening? His rule was soothing to behold, small comfort as I was to have at the end. He decreed in the interest of his patient an absolutely soundless house, and a consequent break-up of the party. Little country practitioner as he was, he literally packed off the princess. She departed as promptly as if a revolution had broken out, and Guy Walsingham emigrated with her. I was kindly permitted to remain, and this was not denied even to Mrs. Wimbush. The privilege was withheld indeed from Dora Forbes, so Mrs. Wimbush kept her latest capture temporarily concealed. This was so little, however, her usual way of dealing with her eminent friends, that a couple of days of it exhausted her patience, and she went up to town with him in great publicity. The sudden turn for the worse her afflicted guest had, after a brief improvement taken on the third night, raised an obstacle to her seeing him before her retreat. A fortunate circumstance, doubtless, for she was fundamentally disappointed in him. This was not the kind of performance for which she had invited him to prestige, let alone invited the princess. I must add that none of the generous acts marking her patronage of intellectual and other merit have done so much for her reputation as her lending Neil Paraday, the most beautiful of her numerous homes, to die in. He took advantage to the utmost of the singular favor. 
Day by day I saw him sink, and I roamed alone about the empty terraces and gardens. His wife never came near him, but I scarcely noticed it. As I paced there with rage in my heart, I was too full of another wrong. In the event of his death it would fall to me, perhaps, to bring out in some charming form, with notes, with the tenderest editorial care, that precious heritage of his written project. But where was that precious heritage, and were both the author and the book to have been snatched from us? Lady Augusta wrote me that she had done all she could, and that poor Lord Doramont, who had been really worried to death, was extremely sorry. I couldn't have the matter out with Mrs. Wimbush, for I didn't want to be taunted by her with desiring to aggrandize myself by a public connection with Mr. Paraday's sweepings. She had signified her willingness to meet the expense of all advertising, as indeed she was always ready to do. The last night of the horrible series, the night before he died, I put my ear closer to his pillow. That thing I read you that morning, you know. In your garden that dreadful day? Yes. Won't it do as it is? It would have been a glorious book. It is a glorious book, Neil Paraday murmured. Printed as it stands, beautifully. Beautifully, I passionately promised. It may be imagined whether, now that he's gone, the promise seems to me less sacred. I'm convinced that if such pages had appeared in his lifetime, the Abbey would hold him to-day. I've kept the advertising in my own hands, but the manuscript has not been recovered. It's impossible, and at any rate intolerable, to suppose it can have been wantonly destroyed." Perhaps some hazard of a blind hand, some brutal, fatal ignorance has lighted kitchen fires with it. Every stupid and hideous accident haunts my meditations. My undiscourageable search for the lost treasure would make a long chapter. Fortunately, I've a devoted associate in the person of a young lady who has every day a fresh indignation and a fresh idea, and who maintains with intensity that the prize will still turn up. Sometimes I believe her, but I've quite ceased to believe myself. The only thing for us at all events is to go on seeking and hoping together, and we should be closely united by this firm tie, even were we not at present by another. End of chapter 10 End of The Death of the Lion by Henry James